Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We must learn to regard human beings less in terms of what they do and neglect to do and more in terms of what they suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share stories and narratives of people and programs, both inside and outside the criminal justice program, talk about prison reform, meet authors, people that have been exonerated, but overall stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. I am so excited to introduce our two guests. So we have with us a Steve Bright. Steve is currently teaching law at Yale and Georgetown Universities. He is a longtime human rights attorney. He has argued and won multiple capital cases before the Supreme Court. He is a recipient of the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award and he's been the subject of two books and a film, and he's joining us today from Kentucky. So, Steve, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. And I also want to introduce his co-conspirator on this book, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek since they're both attorneys, James Kwok. And James is an immediate past chair of the Southern Center for Human Rights. He's a former professor of law at the University of Connecticut. Um, he's also co-authored a couple of books, and he met Steve in law school when he took Steve's course on capital punishment. So the universe works in mysterious ways, does it not, gentlemen? It does, yes. Indeed it does. And he also took a, a, a clinic on uh, working on capital cases as well. So I have your new book. The book is called The Fear of Too Much Justice. John Grisham's quote is on the front of the book and says, Only Steve Bright could write such a clear and poignant indictment of criminal injustice in America. So before we really get going, we'll start with Steve. What inspired you to work with James from your perspective on this book? Well, I had been watching all of these things described in the book play out over the last 40 plus years and decided that it would make sense to uh, share that with a wide audience because I think people should be concerned about it and think people should do something about it. Uh, and while James was in my class, someone had mentioned to me that he was on the New York Times bestseller list uh, with a book that he wrote with uh, another person, uh, 13 Bankers. Uh, and we met periodically after he graduated from the law school. And at some point, we decided to work together on this book, and it turned out to be a great decision. 
And James, what did you think when Steve approached you to help co-author this book? Well, it was a great honor. I mean, taking those classes with Steve was one of the highlights of my law school career. I went to law school um, much later than most people. I was 39 when I started at Yale. And, you know, I I knew that I cared about these kinds of issues, about injustice in the criminal legal system, about the death penalty, wrongful convictions. So working with Steve was, um, you know, in school was very important. And then afterward, I got to know Steve better also because I became a supporter and then a board member of the Southern Center for Human Rights, which is where Steve was then uh, then the president of the organization. Uh, so I got to learn more about, you know, about these kinds of injustices and about the kind of work that people are doing to combat them. So, you know, um, obviously I don't have, you know, I haven't argued cases before the Supreme Court um, like, like Steve has, but it's, these are issues that I know a lot about and care a lot about. So I was, I was very happy to work on the book with him. Brian Stevenson, who is a really well-known criminal justice attorney, does the foreword for your book, which is, in my opinion, um, goosebump worthy, which is always a good thing. And Steve, you were growing up in on a farm in rural Kentucky, and um, it's noted in the foreword about a historic ruling that sort of started you on this path to helping those who couldn't find justice find it somewhere along the way or at least try to. Yes, I grew up in a rural uh, area in Kentucky on a little small family farm that my father and my grandfather farmed. And uh, during that time, our community was completely segregated racially, schools, barbershops, businesses. Uh, And it was during that time that I was growing up that uh, efforts were made to change all that. And um, it's interesting, and looking back on it, I think more remarkable than I realized at the time that my parents, who my dad was a farmer who got up every morning and worked all day long until dark and did that every day, and my mother tried to keep up with four very rambunctious children, and yet they were very much involved in uh, changing things and desegregating the community, and so that was uh, a lot of interesting lessons growing up. And James, what started you on this path of the work that you're doing and have been doing all these years? Well, I think it's been a, you know, it's been a long journey. As I said, I went to law school quite late. I think, you know, my, I was, you know, raised by, by my parents to care about injustice and to um, understand that different people face different struggles and that uh, our society was often not, uh, did not treat people who are weak or poor or powerless very well. I actually worked, worked in the business world for several years, and that was very satisfying in many respects. I, I really enjoyed the people I worked with, but I felt like, you know, I was, you know, I was helping various companies make more money. And that wasn't, that wasn't, at the end of the day, that wasn't fulfilling. And that's why I went, why I went to law school. Um, I, when I went to law school, some of the big issues that people cared about that were emerging, that, that people cared about were, this is during the second Bush administration. So Guantanamo, uh, torture, <laughs> I think the um, wrongful convictions had, were becoming an increasingly apparent issue, um, and of course, injustice and the death penalty. So those are some of the things that motivated me to go to law school and then you know, to take the classes I did and to work with the Southern Center after law school. And it's also admirable. And I was saying before we started the show that this book is just filled with so many amazing stories and some very heartbreaking stories and examples. And it's written, and you yourself said this, Steve, before we we got into the conversation, that you wrote this book with James to be read by people who are not attorneys. And what was the thought behind that? 
Well, that's right. I think there's a lot of attention these days to policing and issues in policing, particularly racial bias in policing, but not as much attention to what happens after someone is arrested and they go into the criminal legal system and a prosecutor decides what to charge them with, what plea offer to make, how to prosecute them, maybe strike all the people of color in jury selection to get an all-white jury, all of those kinds of things. So, I felt like it was important, and James and I, to put together a, a book that was for, for everyone that said, here's what's going on. Here's, here's how uh, the power of prosecutors, here are problems with people getting inadequate defense, particularly poor people accused of crimes. Here's a lot of issues of race discrimination, which come into play with regard to charging and prosecuting and jury selection and sentencing. Uh, and so... Uh, we try to put all that in one place and also point out that there are places where states or, or localities are making progress and, and are doing the right thing. But, but unfortunately, it's not in all the places where we need it. No, it's not. And we speak with a lot of different types of criminal justice organizations around the country. We've talked to people who've been exonerated, people that are still in prison at both the jail and the state level. I just found this book so impactful when it comes to how you laid it out. And there was one quote that really caught my eye. Um, There's so many, but uh, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black 70 years ago, wrote that there can be no equal justice where the kind of trial a man gets depends on the amount of money he has. And we hear about plea deals, and you have um, a section in here about plea deals. Was that something that you felt most people just don't know about, that a lot of people in jail are taking pleas they shouldn't be taking? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, certainly people who whose acquaintance with the criminal legal system comes from TV shows, probably think that, that most cases go to trial and that people are uh, defended by zealous and vigorous defense attorneys. Um, I think, you know, a fair number of people who are somewhat educated about the legal system do know that many cases are resolved by plea bargains. In fact, it's over 90% in both the state systems and in the federal systems. I think maybe what people don't know um, quite so much and that we tried to make clear in the book is just how one-sided the process of plea bargaining is. So, you know, you might think that a plea bargain is like a, you know, freely negotiated contract between the uh, prosecuting attorney and the defense lawyer where both parties have the same information, they have the same power and so on. But I think you know, the truth of the matter is that the vast majority of the time, the plea bargains are simply dictated by the prosecutors. The prosecutors can threaten to bring very serious charges that could lead to, you know, 5, 10, 20 years in prison, and they can offer to to charge the defendant under less serious charges that could be resolved with six months, a year, two years, time served, and so on. And on the flip side, the defense attorney has very little ability most of the time to understand, you know, how strong the prosecution's case actually is for a lot of reasons. But the two most important are, one is that in most states, the prosecution is under no obligation to to tell the defense attorney what information they have about the case. And then perhaps most importantly, in most places, the defense attorneys are vastly overworked. In some places, they're incompetent. In most places, they are competent but vastly overworked and just simply don't have the time to investigate their clients' cases. And so the only way the system can work is if they basically advise their clients to accept these plea bargains. So, you know, a related fact that many people probably don't realize is, you know, people think that it's judges who determine sentences. In practice, the sentences 
heavily, if not entirely, determined by the prosecutor. Because first of all, the prosecutor chooses what the charges are, and then often agrees on the sentence, and then the, the judge simply rubber stamps it. So that's why we say, you know, the most important person in the system is not the judge. And that's interesting because I highlighted that in the book. You have a chapter called The All-Powerful Prosecutor, and you say the prosecutor is clearly the most powerful actor in the criminal legal system. But that's sort of sad to think about that, that, you know, somebody getting arrested and being brought in front of a judge with an overworked defense attorney, I mean, they really don't stand a chance. Well, a lot of places, they don't stand much of a chance. And we give one example, there are many, but one example that I think would surprise a lot of people is the prosecutor tells a woman, if you plead guilty, you'll get life. Uh, if you go to trial, we're going to get the death penalty. Uh, and then it says in closing argument to the jury, you know, some crimes are just so heinous, the only punishment is the death penalty and gets the death penalty. But, of course, he knew better because he had offered life in prison. The only reason she didn't uh, get the sentence of life in prison was she didn't take the plea offer. Uh, so we have people, you know, being sentenced to death, and we have some people serving the longest sentences in our prisons uh, not because of the crime they committed or their background, but because they didn't take the plea offer. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. So, uh, Steve and James, if you can hang around with us a little bit longer. And I want to come back and talk about some other aspects of the book and some of the things that you mention and the stories that you've told and, and where you got. I'm really curious to know where you got all of these stories from because there's so many in here. So listeners, go grab another cup of coffee. We'll be right back. You're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, what they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. This is Lisa Riley, and we are here this week with attorneys Steve Bright and James Kwok, who have a very long history of success um, helping with criminal injustice um, in the courts and with organizations that are in this space. And they've written a book that we are discussing. It's called The Fear of Too Much Justice. And I will tell you, you don't have to be an attorney to absorb this book. Um, I've been reading it and am just blown away by the stories. And that leads me to my question, which I'm going to address to Steve. How did you gather all of these stories? I mean, the data is one thing, but you have so finely interspersed the stories of people and, and within the chapters that fit those case studies. How did you find all this information? Well, I think many of those stories are things that uh, we saw and, and uh, dealt with at the Southern Center for Human Rights. We dealt with a lot of death penalty cases, but we also dealt with a lot of issues of the right to counsel of any poor person accused of crimes. Uh, we dealt with race discrimination, and we saw prosecutors striking uh, all the blacks to get an all-white jury. We, we saw debtors' prisons where people who couldn't afford to pay their fines and fees ended up going to jail because they couldn't pay. But also, in addition to that, I think we looked at some studies and so forth that gave us a broader picture of the whole thing, 
so that we knew that the uh, individual stories that we provided were illustrative of what's going on on a much larger scale. Well, you did an amazing job, and almost to the point that some of these stories are hard to read, especially when you hear about people. There was one story I think you have in here where someone served 30 years in prison, they were exonerated, and they died a year later from lung cancer. I mean, those are really hard stories to to hear about. Yeah, I think, you know, we have a system right now that, you know, for reasons we've talked about, the power of the prosecutor, the the white, lack of ability to counsel in many places does uh, treat people very harshly. You know, we've forgotten once upon a time, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said that, you know, better to let, I forget the number, better to let 10 guilty people go free than to, to convict one innocent person. We've, we've basically reversed that um, in this country. We we wrongfully convict, um, you know, we have documented thousands, more than 3,000 wrongful convictions at this point. The, the real number is, is almost certainly in the tens of thousands. Because the failings you see in those wrongful convictions exist in many other cases where there is no DNA evidence that can be used to exonerate people. And, you know, for reasons I I, uh, I can only speculate about, as a society, we've, we've decided that we're comfortable with a system that inflicts horrifically harsh punishments on many people, often, you know, punishments that are very disproportionate to the wrongs that these people may have committed, and with treating people's lives the lives of innocent people essentially is collateral damage. So it is, you know, a lot of things we talk about that are painful. I think we want people to read the stories and to get a sense both on a, you know, on a large statistical level, but also on an individual level of what the system is is doing to, to real people every day. And I think you've done a wonderful job with that. One of the chapters is called Courts of Profit. And we've briefly touched on the private prison industry on the Hustler Files. And I've been in a federal prison, not incarcerated, knock on wood, but um, to visit multiple times in the Mojave Desert, the California uh, City Prison. And that was a for-profit prison. And, you know, there were basically a dollar amount on everybody's head that was in there. And that's how the rental fee from the state of California was given back to the owners of that prison. And that was really hard for me to wrap my head around. But you talk about this courts of profit. And when we were at break, um, Steve, you and James mentioned private probation. And I've never heard that term. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. In that chapter, we tell the story of a man named Hills McGee who was surviving on veterans' disability payments. And, you know, he came to court. He was charged with a crime. He was fined, and uh, he couldn't pay the fine, of course. It's about $1,000, but that was far more than he had. So the judge said, well, let you pay it on the installment plan. You can pay over the next 12 months. Uh, but what he found is that he had to pay it to a private probation company, and that company charged him $40 a month to do nothing but take his money order with the payment. That was all. It wasn't doing anything to try to help him or any other person deal with whatever got them into the uh, criminal courts. Uh, it basically is just a, a collection agency, uh, and it's a huge profitable industry all around the country. And what happens, of course, as the as the months went by, he was further and further in debt because he couldn't pay. He couldn't pay the original amount, and he sure couldn't pay the amount when you added forty dollars to it for each month. And then what happens at the end is the person's thrown in jail. Now there's Supreme Court cases that say you can't put a person in jail for inability to pay if they just don't have the money. 
Unfortunately, those Supreme Court cases are ignored day in and day out in a lot of traffic courts and a lot of misdemeanor courts all around the country. And people are uh, thrown in jail uh, because they're debtors. And that's what you were referring to when you also mentioned to me about debtors prison. Is that in the same? Is that in line with what you're the story? Right. It's people who are thrown in jail because they can't pay their fines and fees. And the hope that the family member or somebody, obviously they can't pay now that they're in jail, uh, but hope that a family member or somebody will pay so they can get out. And those, those are debtor prisons. And is this a common experience that still happens in maybe more so in certain states than others? Or is debtor's prison and private probation going the way of the dinosaur, we hope? So the practice of locking people up because they don't have money is is still quite widespread, unfortunately. Debtors' prisons come in a couple of forms. One is, as Steve said, you know, you, you run a red light, you get a fine. Or, uh, and, you know, we have cases where people were illegally burning garbage in their yards, for example. Uh, so there's a citation. They can't, they can't pay the fine. They get private probation. Eventually, they end up going to jail because they can't pay the probation fees. Another form is... Um, is cash bail. So in a lot of places, if you're charged with a, with a crime, you may be required to post bail in order to go free pending your trial. And in many places, the bail amounts are a fixed schedule, which with no consideration of the person's income, which, as Steve said, is unconstitutional, but nevertheless, this happens in many places. And so obviously what happens is that people who have income or credits can post bail and go free pending trial. People who don't have to wait in jail and that means they're much more likely to plead guilty so that they can get out of jail sooner rather than wait months or years for a trial. So there are a number of ways in which poor people end up in jail, besides perhaps the most obvious, which is that they're less likely to have uh, capable representation and therefore more likely to be convicted. What these things share is something that's almost unique to the United States. So, you know, when we talk about probation, which is monitoring people who have been convicted of something but are not incarcerated, or we talk about bail, which is a way to try to ensure that people will show up in court, or even we talk about prison, which is a way, obviously, to punish people who have been convicted. I think most people would say these are kind of functions that should exist. We should have probation officers so that we don't have to incarcerate everybody who's been convicted. But in the United States, what's unique about us is that they've been seen as ways to make money by private companies. So again, private prisons are somewhat well-known. Private probation, Steve talked about. You know, the reason it's very difficult to reform cash bail is that there's a very well-organized bail bondsman industry, which bitterly opposes any changes to the system. So for ideological, historical reasons, the criminal legal system has been targeted by for-profit companies as a way to make money, and they have enough representation, enough lobbying power in state capitals to to maintain their hold on the system. And as we start to have to wrap up, because we're going to be out of time, and I do have a question I want to ask each of you that I ask all my guests, but I don't prepare you because we like nice, honest, transparent answers. And it's a good question. Don't don't get worried. But you did mention in the book, in one of the chapters, More Justice, Less Crime, that $80 billion a year is spent on the prison system in the United States. And and you make a good case for how if we took that money and it could be reallocated to different programs that might be better served than just putting someone in jail and forcing them to spend years not rehabilitating. Oh, yes. And we, we point out to 
the fact that, you know, a number of people uh, in that chapter who were sentenced to death at one time, later their death sentences were set aside for one reason or another. Uh, some of them uh, ultimately were paroled and lived useful and productive lives uh, as citizens, you know, after uh, serving the time. So, you know, redemption is something that unfortunately we don't think about enough uh, with regard to people, particularly very young people who get in trouble uh, with the law. Sadly, as I said a minute ago, we're, we're running out of time. So before we say goodbye to both of you, I always ask my guests what they think their life assignment might be, because I believe that we all have some level of life assignment. I'll start with you, Steve. What do you think your life assignment has been? Well, I think it was to help and represent poor people accused of crimes. And I think uh, more recently, it's to bear witness to those things that we saw in doing that. And that is such an admirable life assignment. I'm sure there are many people who are very grateful that you came into their life. James, how about you? What do you think your life assignment has been or is? Well, I think I'm still figuring that out. I would say, you know, when I was younger, probably I, I might have said something more grandiose. But I think now, you know, I think my assignment is to try to, you know, connect with people around me and to have a positive influence on, on people I know and communities I'm part of. And, you know, if that can translate into having a wider impact through a book like this, that's, that's wonderful. But, yeah, I think that uh, helping and, and being a good person to people close to me is the most important thing. And also very admirable. And again, to our listeners, you must go by the fear of too much justice. If you are interested in the criminal justice system and prison reform, Steve Bright and James Kwok have written an amazingly easy read, thoughtful, impactful, generous, and compassionate book. So gentlemen, thank you again for joining us here today on The Hustler Files. Listeners, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. There's still more to come. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers Program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. We are back, and this week's thoughts as we wrap up The Hustler Files comes from Edward Johns. The law is a might machine. Woe to the unfortunate man who wholly or in part innocent becomes entangled in its might wheels unless his innocence is patent or his rescue planned and executed by able counsel. The machine will grind on relentlessly and ruthlessly and blindfolded justice does not see that the grist is sometimes stained with blood. I thought that was an appropriate thought and I took that right from the book of The Fear of Too Much Justice from our guests this week, Steve Bright and James Kwok. 
And that's a wrap on another Hustler Files. Thank you again to our guests and our advertisers. You can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or on any of your favorite podcast sites. I hope you have an amazing week ahead. And always remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. Mm -hmm.